both from the book of Romans, 1st Romans chapter 5. This is in connection with the topic for this afternoon's sermon, which comes from Lord's Day 16, concerning Christ's death and why Christ's death impacts our life. So we'll read Romans 5, verses 6 through 14. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then jumping ahead to the next chapter, Romans 6, and there we'll read verses 1 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, 
You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 49, stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we devote a sermon to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a summary of the Christian and the Reformed faith. And this afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 16, which is on page 530 of your books of praise. There the question is, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all of his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of weeks ago we looked at the suffering and the death of Christ, or the, focusing especially on the suffering of Christ, and we asked the question, what does it mean that Christ suffered and ultimately died in our place? We also asked the question, what did Paul mean when he said, he was filling up the afflictions of Christ in his body, and what does that mean for us? 
Well, this week the Catechism has us pause and look a little bit longer at the death of Christ. This Lord's Day is here to make sure that we rightly understand the connection between Christ's death, how it impacts us, and what implications it has for our life, for our life and also for our death. It's not enough to just say that Christ died for us. It's important to rightly understand what that means and how Christ's death impacts us. And again, it's good to remember this, this sermon, the series of sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism intended to cover the basics of the Christian faith does not necessarily mean that because these are the basics, they will therefore always be easy. And, and that's certainly not the case with Lord's Day 16 and the, the connection between Christ's death and, and our death and our life. In fact, this is one of the more brainy Lord's Days, if you want to call it that. And, and there's a lot in this Lord's Day that takes some thinking and reasoning through. Not all of the Christian faith is simple and easy to understand. There are things that take much reflection in order to rightly understand. And in fact, there are also many, especially in our day, who do get these connections wrong, and that has consequences. So it's worth our time and our effort to dig through Scripture and to seek to answer these questions. What does Christ's death have to do with our life and our death? You can summarize the different elements in this Lord's Day under the general heading, Christ's death is our life. And so we'll see first why Christ had to die. And then once we see the answer that Scripture gives to that question, it might leave us wondering, as the Catechism does, why then do we still have to die? So we'll look at that in our second point. And then finally, lest we think that, that Christ's death only affects our, our life in the future, after death, in the afterlife, we'll also see what Scripture tells us about now, what Christ's death means for you and me now. So first we want to understand rightly why Christ had to die. Both question answer 40 and 44, so the first and the last questions in this Lord's Day, both of them get at the heart of what you might call penal substitutionary atonement. That's a phrase that theologians use to describe precisely the effect or, or the, the relationship that Christ's death has with our life and death. Now, don't get lost in, in those, those big words in the terminology. Atonement is the main word in that phrase. And if you look up atonement in the dictionary, it means to make amends or reparations. Uh, I've once heard it described as at-one-ment. So, so atonement brings two people back to, to one relationship. They're made one again. Or you could put it in popular language, to make things right. Uh, and that's what Christ's death does. Christ died in order to make things right between us and God. That's what the word atonement means. The word penal in there means that it has to do with punishment or justice. You can think of the word penitentiary or, or, the, or penance or the penal code of the law. In other words, it, it takes justice to make things right with God. That, that restoring of the relationship will not happen without punishment, without justice, because God's justice has been violated. 
Now, to many of us who have grown up in the Reformed churches, this is certainly not anything new. But that doesn't mean it's not something that's questioned, including also in Reformed churches. In fact, it's become very trendy now in the, among theologians, including many Reformed theologians, to deny that Christ's death was a penal atonement. The reason some people object to this idea is they say this puts God in a box. It forces God to, to make um, to, to have some amendments made in order to be at one with us. And, and God is God, after all. So why can't God just fix the relationship without needing punishment or justice? After all, isn't he God? Can he not just overlook sin? And so many believe that this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement makes God vengeful, makes God angry and wrathful instead of forgiving and merciful and loving. But of course, that's not the, the way that Scripture speaks about God. Of course it's true that God is merciful and loving, but it's good to recognize that probably more than anything else, the God of Scripture is described as holy. That's what the angels sing three times over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. And it's true, Scripture does say that God is love. But Scripture also says that God is a consuming fire. You cannot play the one off of the other and say this one is higher than, than that one. And you might think of all the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Oftentimes when we read those, I'm sure you've been through this in your family devotions, it, it can all just seem a little over our head. We think, why all of these requirements and these details? And even the best scholars can't agree on what all the details mean. But there is one thing you can't miss if you do read Leviticus or a book like that together as a family. One thing you cannot miss is God is holy. He may be loving and merciful. He certainly is. But he's also perfect and has nothing to do with sin. He detests sin and unholiness. He consumes like a fire all that is impure and unholy. And so we read already in Genesis when God created Adam and Eve and he commanded them not to eat of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We might think it was really a small thing for them to disobey. It doesn't seem like a big deal. All they did, after all, was eat a piece of fruit. But God had told them in no uncertain terms, when you eat of this, you will die. And so when they did they did die. That is God's standard of justice and holiness. It's not brought down to a level that we can appreciate or we can acknowledge to be fair because we are creatures and we are, on top of that, guilty creatures. When God's justice is violated by sinners or His holiness is disregarded, He doesn't just accept it or overlook it. Indeed, he cannot. It would be wrong for him to do so. And so we speak of penal atonement. God's, to, for things to be made right with God, justice must happen. And then finally, there's the third word there, and that's the element of substitution. 
The atonement that Christ made was substitutionary. He didn't, in other words, deserve the punishment that he received. You, you, you hear substitution, and the kids might think of a substitute teacher, which is a teacher that's there in place of the normal teacher. And so the same is true when we speak of Christ as a substitute. We should have been the ones on the cross. We should have been the ones punished. Christ was there as a substitute. Now, substitutionary punishment is not something you encounter very often in our own culture. We're a very individualistic culture, and so every man that sins must pay for his own sins. That's not always the case in other cultures. In our culture, there's, there's very few cases where, where someone can take the punishment for someone else. And so then there are also some who object to this idea of substitutionary atonement because what kind of God would punish the innocent instead of the guilty. There is something offensive about that. But substitutionary atonement isn't entirely foreign to us. We do understand, for example, if a child commits a crime, the father or mother can, in some cases, take the punishment instead, can pay the fine for that child. And the same principle is true here. Christ has a special relationship with us. He's not just any man. He's our head. He's the head of the elect. He's like a father in that sense. We usually think of Christ as our brother and and God the Father as our father. But there is a sense in which Christ is our father. Isaiah 9 calls him everlasting father. Isaiah 53 speaks of us as his offspring. And it speaks that way because he is our head. He has a relationship like a father has with his children over us. He can stand in our place. He can represent us. And and that's why also Paul calls him the, the second Adam. Just like Adam is our father, so also Christ is the father of the elect. And so when God accuses us, rightly, because of our sin, he says, you stand condemned because of your sin. Christ, as our Father, as our head, is able to stand in our place and say, Father, take me instead of my children. That's the kind of substitution that, that we're speaking of. And so when Christ died on the cross, that meant our punishment as his children was paid. Our sins as those under him were covered. So that's what we mean by that very long phrase that that theologians use, penal substitutionary atonement. It's a long phrase, and you don't have to memorize it. But it is important to rightly understand why Christ had to die. Now, there are, are, as I mentioned, a number who object to this this way of reasoning, to this explanation for Christ's death. And and so they, they propose other explanations, and we couldn't possibly mention them all, but here are a few. Some say that God isn't a wrathful God, so he doesn't need to punish sin. And so, of course, that leaves them with the question, why did Christ die? And so they would say, well, Christ didn't die to satisfy God's justice. Christ died in order to show us an example of love, of what it means to lay down your life for someone else. And that's true. Christ did do that. He is our example. He even tells us in John 15, this is love, that you lay down your life for one another. But that 
by itself does not fully explain Christ's death. And if it did, it would mean Christ's death was purposeless. He died for us as an example, but if he didn't have to, what kind of example is that? He didn't, we didn't need anyone then to die in our place. So sure, it may have been a good example, but then it doesn't accomplish anything. And, and then besides that, Scripture is, of course, very clear. Christ didn't only die as an example. He died with a purpose. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Or 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. There are other explanations, too, of Christ's death, and many of them do carry a grain of truth, uh, but none of them can stand on their own. So yes, he died to give us an example, but that wasn't all of it. Yes, he died to defeat the power of Satan. That's another explanation that's given. That's true. But that doesn't fully explain it. Yes, he died to break the power of death. But that doesn't explain the whole of his death. All of those things are only true because in the first place he died to pay the punishment for our sins. That was the example that he gave us. That was how he defeated Satan. That was how he broke the power of death. So it's good, it's right that Reformed theologians today are insisting on that phrase, penal substitutionary atonement. Now when you look at the Apostles' Creed, it's good to notice it groups Christ's suffering, death, burial, and descent into into one line. And, And that's intentional because Christ went through all of those things in our place, and they're meant to be taken as a unit. These are the things that Christ did instead of you. He did these for you in your place. And so we saw last week how he suffered in our place and how terrible those sufferings were, which he endured. And those sufferings culminated in his death. The price for sin, the wages of sin, is death. It's what Adam and Eve were strictly warned about. The day you eat of it, you will die. The fact that Christ genuinely died, he did indeed die, is then reinforced in the next phrase that he was buried. There were many in the time that the creed was written who did not believe that Christ really died. That maybe someone else was on the cross in his place and no one noticed the difference. Or or maybe he just looked like he died. He passed out. But then he, he later walked away after they took him off the cross. But the, the Apostles' Creed wants to make it as clear as possible. He died and he was buried. And indeed, he spent three days in the grave. They wrapped Jesus' body in all the usual burial garments. So even if he had been unconscious, he would have suffocated to death in all of those garments. He truly died. Then there's one last statement in the creed. And in the English that we have in our book of praise, it says, He descended into hell. 
And if you're wondering, well, what in the world is the creed talking about? And I've had that question many, many times from catechism students. If you're wondering, what does that phrase mean? You're certainly not alone. There are many good pastors and theologians also in Reformed churches that have argued that that phrase doesn't even belong in, in the creed. There's two reasons why this line in the creed is so controversial. The first is it's a very late edition. Most of the creed goes back to the second century. Um, but this line was added much later, probably as late as the seventh century. So many Christians, and, and fairly understandably have argued, does this really belong in the Apostles' Creed? The other reason that it's controversial, as you might imagine, is you don't read anywhere about Jesus after his death descending into hell. And so you wonder, where does a line like this come from? Let me try and answer both of those questions in turn. In answer to the first question, it's true this is a very late addition in the creed, but that doesn't mean it's a late belief. It's actually stating a very old, very ancient belief that you can find in almost all of the church fathers and is still held by most Christian traditions around the world. The reason it sounds so strange to us is because of the English word hell, just like the Latin word, which is uh, infras in, in the creed. The English word hell used to actually have a different meaning. And the way it was, when it was initially written, it didn't refer to hell, the place of the damned. Today, hell is, is what we call the place where unbelievers go to face God's wrath forever, for eternity. When the creed was written in medieval times, the, the word simply meant a, a region below, the world of the dead, the realm of the dead. And so the point that the creed initially intended to make is that Jesus' body went into the grave and his soul went into the realm of the dead. Now, that may sound strange to many of us in the Reformed world, but it's not strange to Christianity. It's what all the church fathers held to and believed and taught. And they believed that the Old Testament saints had been waiting there in the realm of the dead until the coming of Christ, at which point they were taken up into heaven. Now, that's not an idea that's taught in our confessions, nor is it excluded by our confessions. Many of the Reformers held to it, and many did not. But all, they, they all certainly agreed that, and our confessions also teach, that certainly now that Christ has gone into heaven, we who die do not go to the world of the dead, nor do we sleep. We go immediately to be with Christ. And you can see that already in, in say, what Peter says, or what Paul says in, in Philippians Chapter 1, where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saints, we Christians, go to be with Christ immediately upon our death. So you might ask, well, if, if the original creed used to just say that Christ ascended into the realm of the dead, why doesn't our creed say that anymore? Why didn't we just fix it and change the word from hell back to what it originally meant, the realm of the dead? Well, as you might expect, it gets more complicated. Over time, the word hell did start to refer to, to what we now think of it as, as, the realm, or as the realm of the damned, the place where unbelievers go. And so in the time of the Reformation, when people were confessing the creed, they started to think that Jesus literally descended into hell. 
into the place of the damned. And so then by the time of the Reformation, the, the Roman Catholic Church had taken that whole concept and built on top of it a, a limbus in phantom and, and a purgatory and all this, this complex doctrine, places where people go before they go into heaven. And the Bible doesn't teach any of that anywhere. And so then by the time of the Reformation, when the Reformation happened, the Reformers... Uh, they, they wanted to follow scripture, they wanted to be faithful to the creed, but they felt obviously, understandably, very uncomfortable about this whole line in the creed because of all the associated doctrines with it. And so when they wrote the catechism, instead of just throwing out this line, some of them wanted to just take the line out altogether, instead of throwing it out, they simply decided to reinterpret it. And that's what you find in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. They kept the wording the way it was with the word hell, but then they interpreted it in terms of Jesus' suffering, the wrath of hell, the wrath of God on the cross. That, of course, that at least is something that Scripture clearly teaches. So that's how we have the creed the way we have it, and why the catechism also is written the way it is. And it's a true and it's a biblical doctrine what the catechism teaches there, even though it isn't what the church fathers initially meant when they wrote this line in the Apostles' Creed. So some other Reformed churches have decided to drop the line from the creed altogether, and, and that's understandable. It is a late addition, but it is an early and a biblical idea that's meant there. And other churches have readopted the original sense, taking it to refer to the realm of the dead. And so they, they translate that as Hades instead. And maybe you've seen the Apostles' Creed. If you've been to another church, maybe you've seen the Apostles' Creed with the word Hades there instead. And it's the same concept there as the Hebrew word Sheol, the place where the dead go. And, and that's how the Westminster Confession, that's, that's our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, that's how they interpret the Apostles' Creed. That's also the sense that you'll find in hymn two, which we'll sing after the, the sermon. So as, as it happens, we now have both versions. We have hymn one that takes the, the catechism's interpretation and hymn two that takes the initial, the, the original meaning uh, of the creed. Neither, way, neither interpretation is, is wrong. Both are biblical ideas if they're understood in the right sense. After dying on the cross, Jesus did enter the domain of death. And, and, he, and there, he thereby broke the power of death by taking the punishment of God for sin so that the curse of death no longer hangs on us. That's, that's very clearly taught in Romans 6. And, and then once he took that on himself and broke death's hold on us, then the saints of the Old and New Testament could also go to be with, with Christ in heaven. Now, if we understand all that, we might still be left wondering, as the, as the catechism does, if Christ has died in our place, why do we still have to die? That's the question that the catechism asks, and it's an understandable, a very good a very good question, and it's a question you'll often hear from brand new Christians. Maybe it's not something you wonder because you, you've grown up as Christians, you know we have to die, and, and you just assume that's, that's the way it is. But new Christians rightly ask this question, Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? Isn't our punishment paid and our punishment is death? 
So why do we still die? To be able to understand this, we need to realize that in Scripture, death, death is much more than just physical death. It's not just the breakdown of the body, but it begins with a broken relationship with God. And that's why when, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and, and God told them, the day you eat of it, you will die, he, he was not speaking a lie, even though their final, their actual death, the final breakdown of their body didn't happen for more than 900 years. The, the relationship with God was immediately broken. There, and, and there is no life apart from God. Any life that we have apart from Him is not life that's worth living. So even when Adam and Eve sinned, though the physical death didn't reach them for a long time, they, they lived to be very old, but they were removed from the garden, removed from the presence of God, without God, without hope in the world. Our physical death is really only the end product, the end result of a spiritual death that exists through, throughout our lives because of sin. But that's true of unbelievers. The question still stands, why do we, Christians, who don't have a broken relationship with God anymore, why do we still have to die? Well, it's good to understand when Christ made payment for our sins, he affected a legal change before God. We're no longer legally guilty before God. And because of that, we're no longer estranged from God. We're, we're reconciled to him. But even when someone pays the punishment for a crime that they might have committed, it never undoes the damage that that crime did. And the same is true with, with the crime that we humans have then committed against God and the damage that that has done to ourselves and to the world and even also to our physical bodies. The entire breakdown of creation is a consequence of sin. And, and just because the original problem has now been dealt with by Christ's death, does not mean that there are not yet consequences for us still to face. There are going to be ongoing effects of sin in this world. Sin has broken the world, and the damage is real, and it doesn't just disappear when the price is paid. And that's also true even of the damage done to our own bodies. But the Catechism is right. When we die... We're not paying the punishment for our sins. That was the initial, the, the, the wage of sin. But that's not the reason why we die. Our death is no longer a punishment for sin. Instead, when we die, we are laying down a broken, sinful body into the earth in order to forever bring an end to the damage that sin has done to it. And we need to do that for perfect sinless bodies to rise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what you sow, he's referring to plants, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. The, the damage that sin has done, it has done. There is no undoing of that on this side of life. But because of Christ, when we lay our bodies down into the dirt, we don't do so now in order to begin facing the second death as was intended by the curse. 
That's, and that's the language that the book of Revelation uses, the second death, the lake of fire. When we lay our bodies down, we don't do so in order to begin the second greater death. No, because of Christ, when we lay our bodies down, we do so to bring an end to the cycle of brokenness and death and sin. And, and so our, our broken bodies, our sinful bodies, our corrupted bodies need to die in order for perfect, sinless bodies to be able to be raised and raised gloriously. That's the hope that we have of the go- in the gospel. And in the meantime, as we wait for those bodies, because it will not be immediate, as we wait for that day, our souls will not dwell in the realm of death nor sleep in the grave. Our souls are comforted in the presence of Christ. One final point. All of this might lead you to think that our death, or that Christ's death, only has consequences for the distant future, for the afterlife, for what happens after we die. Christians often think that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll go to heaven instead of going to hell. And that's the whole point of believing We think sometimes that Christ's death only affects us in the sense that it determines where we go after we die. That's not what Scripture teaches, not at all. Paul says in Romans 6, All of us who have been baptized into Christ's death, or into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. We've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, there is a sense in which you have died with Christ. Our old selves died when Christ died. Now, if you're you're feeling bad about not, not really wrapping your head around that, don't worry. Even the Apostle Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. But, but don't check out just yet. Don't, don't let your brain sort of wander off until all this difficult theological stuff is over and I get to the practical stuff. It can be tempting to do that when we run into this sort of language of being united with Christ and, and so forth. But Paul doesn't write this so that we can just tune out and wait for the good parts. He wants us to get there through this theological path even though it can be difficult. He teaches us these things because he wants the practical stuff of our Christian life to be rooted in these theological truths, even though they're difficult. So don't check out just yet. The reason this is difficult language, and it's not just Paul, it's Peter who uses this language too. The reason it's difficult is because it's using ways of thinking that we're not used to in, in our culture. It's categories of thought that we're not used to using. We know we didn't literally, you weren't literally dying there on the cross with Christ. You weren't hanging there as well. And so when Paul says, you died with Christ, we tend to just check out because we can't understand what, what he means by that. But scripture here is talking about how God sees us. We are united with Christ from God's perspective. He sees us as lumped together, so to speak, with Christ, counted together with him in a very real way, even though that's an invisible, it's a spiritual connection. 
God sees us as if we had been there on the cross with Christ. Because we're counted together with Him. Just as when a father takes the punishment in place of his child, the, the law sees the two of them together as having taken that punishment. That's what it means when it says we're united with Christ. Another way to look at this is to say the future, that's the glorious end result of Christ's work, us in heaven, in eternity with God, the, the end of death, the future breaks into the present. The future breaks into the present. So some people talk about it as, as a reality that is already and not yet. It, it's true, it's not there perfectly, and yet it's still here, really, genuinely. We still sin a lot. It's true. We still have broken bodies, sinfully oriented hearts. But because our hope is there in the future, and it's there certainly, that hope does break its way into our present. You might compare it to to a prisoner of war, living in a prisoner of war camp. You know that many, many prisoners have gone through this, and it's a horrible, it's a desperate reality, especially when the chances of being saved are very unlikely. Hundreds of thousands of troops have died from starvation and disease and exhaustion and torture in these prisoner of war camps without any hope of ever being saved. And if you, if you know, if you're a prisoner of war and you know that there's very little hope of being saved, that's going to affect the way that you live. But imagine now that a prisoner discovers that his army has found out about this camp and is encamped just around the corner, and they're setting up for the big invasion. And he knows it's only a matter of days before he's finally free. Well, then no matter what he endures at the hands of the enemy, no matter how exhausted or discouraged or sick he might be, the news of his deliverance, that cannot help but affect the way that he lives now. The future breaks into the present. This is something like what Paul is talking about here, where the future breaks into the present. The knowledge of who we will be, certainly, because Christ has certainly won that victory, that absolutely changes who we are already now. The Apostle John says it this way, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as, as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We know where we're going, and so we dress for the journey. We were warned, my wife was warned when she came from Brazil in December, coming to Canada in December. She, she was warned, dress for where you're going, not for where you're at. And, and the same is true for the Christian life. Dress for where you're going. Live your life. Prepare yourself for your destination, not for where you are now. Don't live like the rest of the world because you're in the world. Live like, kingdoms of, like citizens of the kingdom of heaven because that is where you're going. The future breaks into the present. The Apostle Peter said it this way, he said of Christ, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might also die to sin and live to righteousness. 
So you can look at that from, from two sides. From, from our side, we identify ourselves with Christ who died for us. And so we think, how can I possibly love the very sin for which Christ died? I'm united to Christ, and so I detest my sin. And from the other side, now from God's perspective, he says, these people are counted together with Christ, and so he will not let us, for whom Christ died, fall away. He will not let us lose the deliverance that Christ has bought for us. So both we from earth and God from heaven see ourselves as united with Christ. So then, Christ's death is our life. We see he had to die because God's payment, God's justice demands payment. And yes, it's true, we still, we too do have to die. But for anyone now who's thus united to Christ, thus counted together with Christ, our death is not a payment for sin. Our death finally puts an end to the sin that does not belong in us anymore so that we can finally be free from the brokenness that we experience on this earth and that we still feel even in our bodies. Now, I don't say that to make light of death. I recognize death is a horrible reality. It's, it's a consequence of sin that we weren't created to, to endure. We weren't made to die. It isn't natural to die. And, and we can feel how horribly unnatural it is when we ourselves are facing death or when loved ones are, are facing death. We were not made to die. But... Death is also, for us, the end of a lifelong struggle with brokenness, with pain, with anguish, and with sin. All of those ongoing effects of sin. Our, our form for baptism says that our life is nothing but a constant death, and in many ways, that's true. Even in the joys of life, we experience weaknesses and shortcomings and disappointments. So when we die, as hard as it is to die, we know that our death is not the end of our story. It's not the final chapter in our lives. It's only a short interlude. We lay down our broken, sinful bodies so that a glorious perfect body can rise up in its place. And so, brothers and sisters, knowing already now then what Christ has bought for us, knowing what he has prepared for us, let the future break also into your present. As we look forward to the new heavens, the new earth that he has bought for us, let us also now die with Christ to sin and begin already now to live a new life of righteousness that he's bought for us and delivers to us. Amen.